0: Welcome to another edition of Transformation Radio.
1: Our reading in the New Testament is from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 22. We'll go through chapter 3, verse 17. Running away is sometimes considered cowardly, but wise people realize that removing themselves physically from temptation... Often can be the most courageous action to take. Timothy, a young man, was warned to run from anything that produced evil thoughts. Do you have a a recurring temptation that you find difficult to resist? Remove yourself physically from any situation that stimulates your desire to sin. Knowing when to run is as important in spiritual battle as knowing when and how to fight. We'll read about Paul's reference to the last days here today. It reveals his sense of urgency. The last days began after Jesus' resurrection when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers at Pentecost. The last days will continue until Christ's second coming. And this means that we are living in the last days right now. So we should make the most of the time that God has given us. In many parts of the world today, being a Christian is not especially difficult. People aren't jailed for reading the Bible or executed for preaching Christ. However, this kind of persecution is very real for many believers. Paul's descriptive list of behavior in the last days describes our society, even unfortunately the behavior of many Christians. Check your life against Paul's list here. Don't give in to society's pressures. Don't settle for comfort without commitment. Stand up against evil by living as God would have his people live. All right, with that, let's begin our reading today. Here in the New Testament. October 24th, the New Testament. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Through chapter 3, verse 17. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments. That only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts, and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. You should know this, Timothy. and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth, just as Janaz and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janaz and Jambres. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you, You have been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Psalm 94, verses 1 through 23. At times, we'll read here today, that God must discipline us to help us. Now, this is similar to a loving parent disciplining his child. The discipline is not very enjoyable to the child, but it is essential to teach him or her right from wrong. The Bible says that no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. When you feel God's hand of correction, accept it as proof of His love. Realize that God is urging you to follow His paths instead of stubbornly going your own way. Psalm 94, verses 1-23 through 23. O Lord, the God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, let your glorious justice shine forth. Arise, O judge of the earth, give the proud what they deserve. How long, O Lord, how long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? How long will these evil people boast? They crush your people, Lord, hurting those you claim as your own. They kill widows and foreigners and murder orphans. The Lord isn't looking, they say. And besides, the God of Israel doesn't care. Think again, you fools. When will you finally catch on? Is he deaf, the one who made your ears? Is he blind, the one who formed your eyes? He punishes the nations. Won't he also punish you? He knows everything. Doesn't he also know what you are doing? The Lord knows people's thoughts. He knows they are worthless. Joyful are those you discipline, Lord, those you teach with your instructions. You give them relief from troubled times until a pit is dug to capture the wicked. The Lord will not reject His people. He will not abandon His special possession. Judgment will again be founded on justice, and those with virtuous hearts will pursue it. Who will protect me from the wicked? Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had helped me, I would soon have settled in the silence of the grave. I cried out, I am slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. When doubts fill my mind, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. Can unjust leaders claim that God is on their side? Leaders whose decrees permit injustice? They gang up against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord is my fortress. My God is the mighty rock where I hide. God will turn the sins of evil people back on them. He will destroy them for their sins. The Lord our God will destroy them. Proverbs 26, verses 6 through 8 Trusting a fool to convey a message is like cutting off one's feet or drinking poison. A proverb in the mouth of a fool is as useless as a paralyzed leg. Honoring a fool is as foolish as tying a stone to a slingshot.
0: The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Well, last week, um, we continued on looking at Luke 15 and, and kind of dissecting this, this parable. But we, we discussed really in detail the different audiences that were present um, when Jesus told the parable. Um, because he, basically, Luke 15, as you as you probably know, consists of three parables, and we kind of looked at the first two. And, and from what we know, is that there were sinners gathering around Christ. Right? There was these sinners gathering, drawing near. The text says, and the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people, they were grumbling. They didn't like that all too much. They were they were you know probably thinking, oh, look, there's Jesus hanging out with the with the unclean folks again. He's probably just telling them what they want to hear. And so this is the setting. Jesus begins to tell these parables. And and last week, as we read the first two, we see how Jesus totally, radically changes our categories for who God is, for what sin is, and for what salvation is. And so today we're going to read the third parable. And so if you want to go ahead and turn to uh, Luke 15, we're going to be reading from uh, verses 11 through 32. So I'll go ahead and read that. And he said, and this is Jesus speaking, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these thi- and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this is the word of the Lord. And what what we know is that this, this parable has been commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. But from what we just read and what we've heard Keller say and what we've said the past few weeks is that we know now that rightfully said, the parable should be called the parable of the two lost sons. Because it's not just the young son that's lost. It's also the elder son. So both of them are lost. So the first thing let's look at this morning is this request the request in and of itself. So verses 11 11 and 12a says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Now, what we have to understand here is, is the sinner's The religious leaders were were, were listening to him. But more specifically, Jesus was speaking. He was addressing these to the Pharisees in specific. And this would have been absolutely shocking to them. The request in and of itself would have been almost absurd, I think. Almost absurd because the younger son comes to the father and basically says, give me my inheritance and I want it now. Give me my inheritance and I want it now. And see, what we know is that back then, yeah, there would have been an inheritance for the sons. Uh, the older son would have inherited two-thirds, two-thirds of the family estate and the younger son would have inherited one-third of the family estate. But, but this always happened when the father died. This always happened when the father died. Therefore, therefore the request in and of itself, it's extremely disrespectful. The request is extremely disrespectful. It's even more than that. It's unbelievable because in effect, what's happening is the son is is basically wishing his father dead. Give me what's mine. I don't want you. I want your things. And I want it now. Now, you know, we could imagine at this request, maybe the father riding his donkey off to, the, off to the local bank and taking out some cash. But this isn't the case. Because what we know is that during this time, your wealth was largely tied to your land. And your land was a part of you. Your land was much more important to the folks back then than we might imagine today. It was Your land was your place. Your land was your home. It was, it was your value. And so the father would have had to sell off um, a part of the family estate. He would have had to go through the whole ordeal of valuing everything and and figuring out what a third of of all of it would uh, would have been, what the inheritance actually was. And this would have been a difficult and tedious process, right? Additionally, Keller makes us aware of the fact that, and rightfully so, that the Greek word used here when it says property, is actually the word bios, which means life. And so in effect, uh, what we can interpret is a, this as is, Father, give me the share of your life that's coming to me. And so what, what we have to see here is that this isn't just a relational blow between the younger son and the father. Th- this affects the whole family. It changed the whole family's economic status. It changed the whole family's status amongst the community. The father would have had to go off and sell a portion of the estate and so on and so forth. So this was no small request. It was overwhelmingly disrespectful. It was overwhelmingly offensive and harmful to the family. So I think one of the things that we should ask ourselves is... Why would the younger son make such a request? Why would the younger son make such a request? And Keller remarks Keller remarks that in his confessions, Augustine, uh, probably one of the most influential uh, classical theologians from the third century, who has much more influence on the church today than you, than we could ever imagine, gives us a theory of why we do what we do. Why we do what we do and especially why we sin. So he makes this startling observation, and this will be on the screen. So this is Augustine. A man has murdered another man. What was his motive? Either he desired his wife or his property, or else he would steal to support himself, or else he um, he was afraid of losing something to him, or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenged. And then Keller kind of speaks into this. He says, Augustine goes on to say that even a murderer murders because he loves something. He loves romance or wealth or his reputation or something else. Too much, inordinately, more than God. And that's why he murders. And then he makes this, I think, beautiful observation. Well, not beautiful, but, but very, very um, profound. He says, Our hearts are distorted by disordered loves. We love, rest our hearts in, and look to things to give us the joy and meaning that only the Lord can give. The younger son may have lived with his father and may even have obeyed his father, but he didn't love his father. The thing he loved ultimately was his father's things, not his father. His heart was set on the wealth and on the comfort and on freedom and the status that wealth would bring. His father was just a means to an end. Now, however, his patience was over. He knew that the request would be like a knife in his father's heart, but he obviously didn't care. Interesting, right? So why do we do what we do? Well, from what Keller kind of unpacks from Augustine is that our hearts, what does he say? Our hearts are distorted by disordered loves. Such an elegant way to put it. What does that mean? It means we love, we rest our hearts in, we look to things to give us joy and meaning that only the Lord can give. This is the case for you and I, and this is the case for the younger son in this parable. So imagine with me how scandalous this request from the son actually is. Imagine, can you imagine your son or daughter making such a request and how it would break your heart? Father, mother, I want want your things and not you. I wish you dead so that I could have your stuff. So it's in the request that we get to see a glimpse of the lostness it's in the request that we get to see a glimpse of the rebelliousness of the younger son. We see how the younger son's request is tearing the family apart. It's breaking the father's heart. It's, he's disrespecting his father. He's disregarding anyone else but himself. Overwhelmingly disrespectful, just absurd. Absurd. And what we're going to discuss more next week is that although the two sons look very different externally, they're both in fact lost. The younger son goes off and lives a life of wild living, right? Does whatever he wants, very bohemian. A lot of promiscuity. While the elder brother stays home and obeys the dad, right? But what's what's What is so interesting is that yet we'll see how the, the elder son also rejects the father. And actually, he doesn't love the father because of his obedience. That's what's so startling about this text is the younger son, it's obvious, right? He he disrespects, he doesn't love the father because of all this wild living, because of, you know, he asks for inheritance, he basically wishes his father dead. But the elder son actually disrespects the father, actually doesn't want the father, actually doesn't really care for the father because of his obedience. So we'll explain how how the elder brother shows that he's been obeying the father to get his things. Not because he loves him. Since he's willing to put him to shame, both the older and the younger sons love the father's things and not the father. So we see the younger sons insanely disrespectful, insanely hurtful, insanely selfish request. Now, how does the father respond? How does this father respond? Well, let's look at 12, uh, the second half of verse 12 and then 20 through 24. Second half of verse 12 says, it all just goes right to it. It says, and he divided his property between them. And then 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Look at this remarkable response. We've been talking about how the request was so scandalous, but he says he divided the property between them. Again, the word property uh, is really the Greek word bios, which means life. So it says he divided his life between them. This would have, if, if the request wasn't shocking enough, the response to, in this parable to the people listening to Jesus would have been absolutely absurd. Absolutely incredible. The listeners would have assumed that because of the younger son's request, the father, they assumed that he would have responded in contempt, maybe even physical force, but most certainly with absolute outrage. Because their wealth, you know, as we said, their wealth was tied to their land in this culture. I mean, we have some of it in our culture, but not much. But in this culture, there was a high, high respect and high regard to your elders. Especially the owner of the estate. And so here we see the father giving the son what he asks for. Selling off the family land which in turn, he knows this, it's going to be an absolute detriment to the, to the family name. An absolute detriment to the family status. The older son, as we see later in the, in the text, but the older son and really anyone else in the community would have thought that the father was being foolish, was being absurd, that he'd lost his mind by giving the son what he asked for. So why did he do it? Why did the father do it? How was he not overcome with anger? Why would the father put up with so much disrespect? Well, let's think about this. If the father had become enraged, if the father had become bitter, and had perhaps, you know, beaten the younger brother, beaten his his young son, or done something else severe to him, no restoration would have ever happened the father's heart would have been too hardened to ever receive him back and the son probably would have never expected or wanted the father to take him back and so this is this is the the crazy beauty of it is that by by bearing the agony and pain of his son's sin himself, instead of taking revenge, instead of paying the son back by inflicting pain on him or disowning him, the father kept the door open in the relationship. The father was willing to suffer for the sin of his son so that someday reconciliation might be possible. Do you see this? The Father's willingly bearing all the shame, bearing all the ridicule. He's bearing all the loss with no retaliation. There's not even a sign of retaliation in this parable in hopes that someday the relationship may be restored. We don't even have a a category for this because we don't respond this way. The father's deeply wise and deeply caring and overwhelmingly loving. I mean, the father sees the big picture, if you will. The father's not blinded by anger and rage. He's not blinded by overwhelming, you know, by, by, the, by the offenses, by the selfishness, by the rebellion, by the betrayal that his younger son is displaying. So, so lastly, what, what difference does this make for us? What difference does this make for us? First, it means that that whether we're irreligious younger brother types or moral religious elder brother types, we have a problem with what Augustine calls inordinate love or idols of the heart. Doesn't matter which, which category, doesn't matter which side we fall on. We have we have problems with these inordinate loves. See, because many of us are like the elder brother. Many of us. Most people that go to church, I would say. uh, we, We may obey all the rules, but our real heart and passion is something else. Maybe it's our career, or maybe it's making money, or maybe it's your children, or maybe it's peer acceptance. And what many of us need to realize is that usually... We replace God with good things. What Augustine called inordinate loves. You could call it a functional savior. Things we're really trying to be fulfilled by besides God himself. And we can be very religious and do this. We can be very moral and do this. We can appear to have it all together and do this. We attempt to find ultimate peace from our spouse... And in turn, we crush them under the weight of our soul. What do I mean? I mean, they can't, they, our spouse can't fulfill all of our longings and desires. Because if our functional Savior is our spouse, then when they inevitably mess up, if they're our functional Savior, then it won't just, you know, hurt our feelings. It'll crush us. We'll despair. We'll turn to something else. Why do affairs happen? When when you attempt to make your kids or your family your functional savior, you'll not be able to just simply enjoy them as a gift from God. You'll constantly be attempting to find your worth and your identity from them. And you can't. You'll crush them and you'll lose your soul. So what, what am I saying here? What I'm trying to say is that only God can bear the full weight of your soul. Only if you give your life over to God can you appropriately love all of the other good things in your life. Why? Because you're not trying to find your identity and your hope from them. So ask yourself this morning, what do I care about? What do I care about? Uh, What do I love? When I daydream, what what are the objects of my affections? Where do I spend my energy? What do I cherish? What do I hope for? What am I trying to find value from? What am I living for? And is it towards God? What am I running towards? What am I running from? Have you written off Christianity without understanding Christianity? Because if anything has a controlling position in your heart, if anything is more important to your happiness than God, then that thing is a God to you. Or an inordinate love, as Augustine says. So just so, so, don't beat yourself up in this moment. Just recognize these things for what they are. Do you see them in your heart and your life? Most often, they're the things that you're most passionate about or they're the things that you most fear. Once we see these things for what they are, what, what what can be done about them? Well, first, we have to know that we're made by God and we're made for God. Everywhere else might be a decent place, but it's not home, as Keller says. The second difference this makes for us is it means that our Lord, and this is beautiful. So what difference does this make? The second, re, the second thing is it means that our Lord has done for us what the Father in this parable did for His Son. That God has done for us what the Father in this parable did for His Son. When God came into the world, we would have expected Him to come in wrath right just logically if we're sinners and and you know said by because of sin we deserve punishment then then we would have expected god to come in wrath to appear and drive us out with physical blows and anger is that what the gospel teaches no he didn't do this he didn't come with a sword in his hand but he came with nails in his hands he didn't come to bring judgment he came to bear judgment Jesus went to the cross in weakness, and there, voluntarily, willingly, his life was literally torn apart. And for his only property left, his garment, they cast lots. But he did it so that when we repent, like the younger son ultimately ends up doing, forgiveness and reconciliation is available for you and I. And so how, how does this help us? How does understanding this help us when it comes to our inordinate loves, when it comes to our idols, when it comes to our functional saviors? Well, objectively, it means that there's real, true forgiveness for them. It means that our guilt can be dealt with because of Jesus' blood, because of the atonement, as theologians call it, because of the cross, because of Jesus' sinless life. When you put your faith in Christ, when you follow Him, when you turn and repent of your sins, God forgives you of your idolatries. Not because you're awesome and God wants you on His team, but because of what Jesus Christ has done through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. Now, subjectively, when we see the absolute beauty of what Jesus has done for us, it captures our hearts. When we understand the gospel, when we really understand the gospel, it captures our hearts. Money can't die for us. Popularity can't die for us. And there's nothing more beautiful in all of reality than the picture of a perfectly happy being leaving all the bliss of heaven and sacrificing everything for the sake of a rebellious, undeserving, and ungrateful people. And so the more I think we look at Jesus doing all these things, the more that we're going to love him above anything or anyone else. He'll capture your heart so that nothing matters more than he does. When you see what he's done for you, it makes, when you really see it, when you really understand it, when it really comes home, then what ends up happening is in the worst, the worst times become bearable. And then all the good things in your life, you'll actually be able to enjoy those things because you won't be trying to find your value and your worth in them. So again, my hope for you this morning, our hope for you this morning is for you to see that God is the Father in this parable. Answering your rebellion with the gracious opportunity of forgiveness and welcoming you back home. Because we all know that we've sinned. We all know that we've fallen short of God's holy standard. We've all been unfaithful. We've all been rebellious. We've all gone our own way. And, in, and God, in mercy, offers us himself. And so the exhortation is put your faith in Jesus. Commit to a local church and engage in Christian community. Let's pray. Jesus, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of, of, of you, God. Sometimes sometimes I think what keeps us from you is um, some form of pride, self-pity. We think we don't deserve it and God if that's anyone this morning I pray that they would see that that's why you went to the cross that's why you went to the cross i think what keeps us from you it's 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 really pride if we think that we don't deserve it because somehow we think we've got to earn it and the bible properly understood we're never going to earn it i'm not good I don't care, like Isaiah talks about how our, our, our good works are like filthy rags. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue you. That doesn't mean we should long to be like you. That doesn't mean we shouldn't grow in Christlikeness. But what it means is on our best day, we don't cut it. We needed your Perfection. And so I just pray this morning that, Lord, your loving, gracious, merciful presence would convict us, but also um, for those that are believers would assure us of our hope. For those that are um, either either the younger son who's just licentious and doing whatever, I just pray that, Lord, they would be drawn to put their faith in you. And begin the process of, of being a follower of Christ. Many of us just need to be awakened again, Lord. This isn't a religious um, religion, being, you know, I obey God and, and, I, and, and therefore He accepts me. It's not the gospel. The gospel is in response to God's goodness. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. God, we see that all throughout your scriptures in the Exodus. You know, you didn't, you didn't deliver, you know, you, you didn't tell Israel, hey, here's the Ten Commandments, do all of them perfectly, and then I'll take you out of Egypt. You delivered them out of Egypt, and then you gave them the law. So the offer on the table for all of us is that no matter how we came in here, no matter how jacked up we are, no matter how all our inordinate loves, all of our sins, all of our idols, some of us were so good and we think that that's why you love us. Man, God, you know, I'm on the varsity team because I'm great for God. That's not true. And so I I pray that despite wherever we are, that we put our faith in you, that we'd repent of our self-righteousness, that we'd repent of our licentiousness, that we'd repent of wherever we find ourselves on that spectrum, and that you would be glorified. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from The Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about The Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.